Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Mark Bennett, a teacher, educational leader, and instructional coach. In this episode, we find out about the role of coaching and conversations in educational leadership and teacher professional development. Mark reflects on how he and other teachers adjusted and responded during the pandemic, and the lessons learned in terms of teaching, learning, education design and how teachers relate to each other. Mark also reflects on the value of teachers collaborating and becoming learners again to quickly solve problems or when there are opportunities for deeper and more considered responses, including those leading to new thinking, change and growth. We explore the often central role of teacher expertise and its relationship to alternative approaches to teaching, learning, and teacher professional development. We chat about the profound simplicity and power of a conversation, the significance of simply being present. Mark believes that the best thing we can do for each other is to be conscious in our conversations, whether they be in the form of a corridor chat, a quick knock on the door, or a more planned event. Underlying all meaningful conversations is the idea that I have time for you and I want to hear what you have to say. We chat about the deceptively simple day-to-day skills and non-verbal gestures, such as closing a laptop lid, as a signal you're ready to create a space for listening and engagement. Mark outlines the value of noticing your own and another person's responses and experiences during a conversation, such as excitement, nervousness, a frown, or a smile. Finally, Mark talks about the profound role of conversation in shaping a school culture and beyond. Here's my conversation with Mark Bennett. Good to see you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we're going to find out more about coaching later on Mm -hmm. in our conversation, hopefully. But in the meantime, I want to find out a little bit more about you and what you studied and what you were interested in, what's led us to this moment. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting conversation because it has emerged. It hasn't been a planned, um, it hasn't been a planned sort of path that I've taken. So uh, currently a teacher and leader at a, at a school, a K to 12 school, and I wear the hat of instructional leader or instructional coach. Um and it's been 15 years, 16 years of teaching, uh, not necessarily leading, about nine, eight or nine years of leading in schools, different schools. But um, teaching is not something that I always wanted to do. And I, I kind of um, sit as an outlier because a lot of my teacher friends, they have said, I've always wanted to be a teacher. It was, you know, I come from a long line of teachers and that well, that's just not the story that I uh, relate to. My, my story is, well, I got early acceptance into university uh, at Western Sydney Uni and, and one of the courses was teaching. So I thought, we'll see how that goes. Um, and I found myself really enjoying it, um, not so much because I wanted to do it prior to starting, but because what I was experiencing was really rewarding and that was uh, helping people learn. Um, and my first um, real excitement for that was on as a prac student, um, 
small primary school up in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Beautiful place. Um, and I thought this is what I really want to do for the rest of my life. So I had been doing it. And, um, yeah, one thing led to another. I found myself in different schools. Um, and, yeah, it's it's funny how it works because you, you, the years sort of pass and you uh, you don't think too much about it, but then you're sort of accruing all these skills and all these things and getting different experiences and um I eventually got into different leadership positions without actually knowing what leadership meant. Um, I've, I've got know. a couple of questions. Yeah, go for it. Um, what what had you enrolled in initially that had exposed that you were then exposed to the teaching? So I initially enrolled in uh, secondary PDHPE teaching, um, and I thought that is a beautiful gig. Uh, teaching kids how to kick a ball and throw, play alternate frisbee, um, and the people that I was talking to in the circles at the time, and this was this feels like a different world. They said, "Well, people just don't leave their jobs in teaching. Teaching jobs are so hard. PDHPE teaching jobs are so hard to get into." Um, and I had a friend that said, "Primary school teaching, give that a go." So I changed my focus, um, stayed at uni for a little bit longer. Um, and was one of two pro- male primary school teachers in the de- degree. Um, a very large cohort of um, female teachers ready to get out there. Um, and my first prac as a primary school teacher was on a U1 class, and it was just the most rewarding experience I've ever had. What, what um, was it? What was rewarding about it? I, I've thought about this question so often because it's actually a recurring theme in a lot of my choices since. Um, And I think what it is, is the balance of performance and the balance of just uh, teaching, that passing on knowledge, storytelling, um, little wins leading to big wins. And um, that two-week prac was an absolute golden experience that I is still very formative in my mind. Um, and when the chips are down, and they have been recently, you know, with the teaching world, I remember that experience quite well. Of um, at the very least, the classroom can be this little haven of story and and performance and joy, um, and. You know, multiple pracs later, I found myself into in um, schools um, where I was the teacher rather than the prac teacher, and it was great because I was I was getting my feel of of what I just spoke about that joy, that performance, but also working with some really great people that had a lot to share, um, and the system that I that I worked in and have worked in since starting um, is a collaborative team teaching system. Um, so you're not on your own uh, in the four-walled classroom. You you stand shoulder to shoulder with a teacher buddy. Um, and those early teachers that I had, they were not officially mentors and not officially coaches, but that's probably how I viewed them because um, you – would listen to what they would say. And they said, I've tried that and it didn't quite work. Or you know what? Like you're really excited about it. Let's give it a go. And um those first five or six years in a couple of very small schools where it was, you know, 
you and what someone else on a grade. It was um, they were really encouraging relationships to have. Um, and it wasn't until my third school, which would have been about six or seven years in, that I first got my le- like a little bit of a leadership position. Um, and I began to feel what it was like on the other side of things. Um, you can be um, you can be that person for someone else. And this all, Mark, this all came without formal training or anything like that. Or, you know, this was well before I was even thinking about um, reading outside of the, um, or engaging in educational literature or anything like that. Um, This was all, like, all the learning was happening on the job in that experiential way. Um, And you, you know, sort of live and die by the sword. You know, you miss a key point on a report and parents will hold you to account or, um, you know, something really um, exciting happens and you share that phone call home. Um, That uh, is the side of teaching that is not in the degrees, no matter how long the degree might be. Um, And then um, I got opportunity after opportunity, which I'm really grateful for. Um, And it led me to go to some two two very big K-12 schools um, which was sort of flagship schools at the time in the in the system that I work in, where I gained, I guess, formal leadership uh, roles such as um, instructional leader or anything. Yeah. Yep. That was just for the people that are not teachers. Just to clarify, yes. when you use the term leader, school leader, yeah. that type of thing, mm. it's like a head of department is a type of leader, but there's lots of yeah. other leaders within within schools. Yeah. So in the primary schools, um, which I've been working in, there'd be sort of gra- your stage leader or a grade leader um, or a s- special projects leader if it's like uh, numeracy or English or um, um, inquiry, those sorts of things. And they can also be um, uh, middle type leaders, so uh, assistant principals, and they're obviously principals. But I had float. I've been floating around the middle leadership, so between the senior leader of the assistant principal and principal, and between the boots on the ground teachers. Um, my my game really for the last ten years has been in that middle leadership ground, which um, which has been really interesting, um, and I think that's probably led me to where I've been, uh, uh, led me to where I am now. Um, because as the middle leader, you're still a teacher. You still have that systemic teaching role, uh, but you also have access to some of those big decisions that impact the teachers. And I was really oblivious of that sort of stuff when I was, you know, first, second, third year out. Um, you know, okay, we're doing that. I'll do that. And um, what's now the that? What's the that? What are some of the um, generic areas that a leader might make decisions about? Yeah, well, uh, reporting policy or reporting guidelines, um, just like even minutia stuff. It could be whether we're having comments in reports or not, or whether we're reporting on general capabilities or not. Um, you know, and they're really big things to grapple over because um, the longer you're in the, ga- the game of teaching, the more sort of perspective you get about, you know, what's happening in the wider world around teaching and education. And, um, yeah, there's been some very big that's in the last uh, 
three to five years, especially um, in and post uh pandemic there's been a lot of that and i've been i've worked at a school that um yeah really grappled with the big that's um around uh and how much instructional time um do we actually need and can we change the the face of schooling so that students who really excelled in the time um when they were when they were at home and learning, how can we bring that into the new schooling of the post-pandemic uh, world? And there was a lot of talk about that. You know, what will school look like after the pandemic? And you know, the school that I worked in at the time um, took those questions head on. Said, "Well, what can we change? What what can we let go of to to embrace?" Um, and what that looked like was. Um, whole bunch of ideas but whittled down to one and one of them was um on friday afternoons if we we can satisfy our minimum teaching requirements or face-to-face hours friday afternoons students can go home and um at midday and they can begin their weekend because what we found with some student surveys post-pandemic was students really valued the the home time that Parents really loved having their children at home and access to their children at home in what would be considered a, a school week. So uh, that was a thing that a school adopted. Um, so what did the leaders? I'm assuming that the leaders ch- chatted uh, amongst themselves and you know with each other and colleagues and did further readings or something before making such a decision. But you know, like what what sort of what how did that? What was the process like? I guess. Just at the very version, <laughs> yeah. At the very first instance, it was just a, it was an idea. Do we think this could work? Um, and I remember, um, you know, we had whole school Zoom meetings, um, whole school Zoom meetings where you would check in in that um, in our time, and the principal leader at the time said, "I've got this. Got, I've got this idea. Do you think it would float?" And the moment the the consensus was, I think it could float. So then we uh, worked out the mechanics of it, uh, or the like, actually getting permission from you know higher above to be able to do that too. And then it was putting it to the parent community and seeing what the uptake was. Um, but it was a very consult. Con- there was a lot of consultation in that um, shaping the idea, making it more practical, considering what it looked like for working families, considering what it looked like if they didn't um, go home, and what it meant was um, it's been a lasting legacy since then. So it's people continually vote with their feet by taking their children home at twelve o'clock. And after that time, there's um, you know supervision for for a very small proportion of student population. So, yeah, those are the big that's. That's a big that, and I feel quite proud of being part of that conversation, um, and and having something as a that I was able we were able to work for work towards. Yep. So I'm, I'm assuming that these sort of moments or initiatives or conversations or other, however you describe that territory, had had a resonance with you and you kind of uh, decided to um, investigate further. I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it. Yeah. I this The whole school was permission 
was a was um, was a permission to think outside the box. So that that's the way the school was constructed. So when we were when we um, were sort of employed at the school, I remember the principal leader saying, um, "You have permission. You can back yourself, and if you've backed yourself." Um, with the confidence that I know that you have, then it will be supported here. If it was in the the right, um, if it had the right intentions behind it, and I guess that school has has had that sort of impact on me, has had that sort of impact on on me to say, well, I can do things other than just be a teacher or just be a leader. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, I don't think that I would be in the position I'm in now if I didn't work at that school. So what I think that permission or the school allowed me to do was just sort of venture into other areas that I think would align with um, the work that I do at school. So I was already employed there as a as an instructional coach. And throughout COVID, I was we were very conscious of how students were um how students were learning and what our the impact of our teaching. So um, Monash uh, had an education design degree that had multiple um, intake points, and one of those intake points aligned with um, the time in which we were at lock in lockdown. And I thought um, I'd like to pursue that um, and see where that goes. And I did. I. I entered that not knowing if I could do further study because I've never really done it before while I've been working full-time in a small family at the time. And and what I found was the stuff that the Monash crew were um, exposing us to and, the, and the, the readings that I was able to engage in really fueled the fire that I had um, as an instructional coach at, at, at the school I was in. Um, and... I found myself sort of integrating elements of that into into our professional learning, into the way that I was talking to staff, and it became a sort of a catalyst for, well, I, if I can do this education, this uh, grad cert, this education design course, then I can actually do other things too. Um, and that's when coaching, um, the wider brief of coaching sort of crossed my mind because I began to learn about myself that I can do more than I'm doing. I began to learn about myself that um, when I'm working with adults who also want to learn and know more, I feel in flow. Um, and when I'm in flow, it feels really good. And this really coincided with um, everyone sort of uh, discerning whether um, what they were doing at the time of COVID and out of COVID um, was for them. This was this was a big conversation for a lot of people, and I had it in my house. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you mentioned the word flow and you mentioned interacting with adults and coaching as well. So can you what does all that mean? And where what what were you doing around that time? So 
I was having these little conversations with the team that I was working with, um, uh, like I guess the stage team that I was working with. Uh, we were holding uh, virtual conversations about, you know, how's it going? There was the well-being side, which was um, certainly about, you know, how are things, how are you feeling? It's been tough this week. Those numbers were bad. Maybe we don't need to pay attention to the numbers. Is there something you could do instead? So it was like all the, part of that. The confronting as realities of the pandemic, you mean? Yes, yes, yes. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then there was the teaching and learning aspect, which we were growing very aware of. Um, we're not sure how long this is going to go for and how impactful our teaching and learning is. So um, at the time I was doing a lot of reading around um teaching and learning online, picking up some stuff from people on Twitter um, and LinkedIn, uh, had ordered some books from people that had been teaching online for a long time and integrating some elements of the education design stuff um, and how we can sort of sharp or hone our skills or redirect our skills so that they're, we can engage with our students through this screen. Um, and it became really empowering conversations. Uh, they became really empowering conversations because where before um, it was shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder work that I would do as an instructional coach, here I'll model um, with the counters on the table and you can watch and we'll see what the students are doing with their hands. We didn't have those tools um, at our disposal. So we began to think in more novel ways of how can we pre-record and how can we get students to comment on what they're seeing as we as as they're doing it and that was really rewarding in the that was rewarding my teacher's brain like i could i could feel that that part was rewarding but bubbling on the sideline was the fact that i was working with a professional um and this might have been a second third year out teacher or someone who was still doing their accreditation at the time but we were both learners in that space. It was a great leveler because I didn't know what it was like to teach online. They certainly didn't. And the students didn't know what it was like to learn online too. Um, so I began to feel what it was like as, as a learner alongside a professional, alongside one of these teachers. Whereas before my role was I'm an instructional coach and in the model I was working with, I was sort of like um, the hired gun. I would, I'd come in with literacy and numeracy expertise and I would show how that would work. This was flipped. This was where we were working uh, together from a novice perspective. And I really liked the conversations that ensued, ensued there. It was they were all posited around, I wonder, or what if that happened? Or what What do you think could happen if we presented it this way? Yeah, um, it's like got a lot of possibilities by the sounds of it. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And um, because it hadn't been done before in in our experience, it, um, it was at, in both ways, I guess, daunting and exciting. The... Face uh, the um, remote learning ended, and we came back, and we flipped, I guess, back to old practices. But in my mind, I had these, this, these experiences of 
empowering conversations with others where uh, where something could be shared and iterated upon and I don't have to have the answer and both parties are okay with that. I like the sound of all of that, especially yeah. iterations and especially yeah. collaborative aspects. Yeah. So what it was, it ended up being um, quite a fine line to work because, like I said, the system I worked in or the structure I worked in required me to have expertise, but I was beginning to learn about how I don't have to have the expertise for us to be able to solve a problem. Um. So, so are they tensions? You know, are they opposites that are in tension with each other, or are they kind of elements that are coexisting within a same experience? Or that, yeah, that is an excellent question because <laughs> it's one that I I would say I grapple with weekly, and oh, I have grappled good. with ongoing. I have it's ongoing, it, and I have grappled with it quite a lot, and so much so that. Um, there are people in the coaching world um, that I've asked or that I've I, I've lent on their knowledge and expertise in that regard because it feels like it feels like a tension for me. Like when I talk about it, I feel it right in the middle of my chest because I really value the idea of not knowing, but I appreciate times in which people just know and just need you need an answer to something. So what it was, my practice, and I'll, and this this isn't a secret to anyone. I, I equate it to pushing on a box. My I found inside space. the box or outside the box. Or? No, I'm I'm inside the box. Oh and yeah. My the the structure in which I work in requires me to have the expertise and knowledge. But what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for opportunities to push on the box where I don't need to have that expertise. And I can open up the conversation or a conversation can be had without the need for expertise at that particular point in time. There might be a point where that person, where I could, for lack of a better word, deploy that expertise. But um, I would like to explore, if that person is willing to, the idea of what, what might they think first? How could it work if you... If you um, put three ideas down, what are your first three ideas? How how might they work? We I'm not going have, to. Could, could I request a worked yeah. example? Yeah, or, or a little anecdote, or something that you you know what was a, a a small or big problem, or you know what was one of these conversations that you had, just so I can kind of get the sense of what you're uh, experiencing, maybe. Yeah. Sure. So um, I work with, I have worked with a team of teachers. So I would be their instructional coach and they would come to me for instructional sort of um, instructional uh, issues or um, guidance, queries, guidance. Yep. Um, and sometimes I would be directed by the, by those above me to say, can you go work with teacher X because they need work on Dot, yep. dot, dot. So you know Other stuff time, and you're going you're gonna to right. enlighten them yep. with your that's expertise, right. but that's Other not what times, happened in this situation. No. Other times a teacher might say, I'm finding that student, this student um, is really not understanding the concept of, uh, let's say, um, jump strategy in mathematics. Okay, so we're talking about early primary school. 
Okay. And like immediately I could say, well, here are five things that have you tried this? Have you tried that? Dot, dot, dot. That's my what, first. I don't know what jump strategy is. That's right. We can do a worked example of that <laughs> after this. Right. Uh, just, just a way, I guess it's just a way of um, uh, showing an addition concept, um, yep. breaking the number into more manageable parts. So if it's right, yes. 43 plus 32, um, can they start on 43, jump? 10, 10, 10, and two more oh, yep, on a yep. little number line. So it's visualising, a like jumping along a number line. I think there might and have been kangaroos uh, involved at one point, if I've seen. Quite possibly, right. yes. I think I have heard that. Um, so I could rattle off a whole bunch of things. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And um, I now view that as a little bit deprofessionalising. Um, that might not be completely well um, sort of that might, 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 might not be agreed upon by many people, but I feel like it's taking the power away from someone that is a professional, regardless of whether they're first year out or 35 years out. I would like to know how they might start this. If they've got a problem with acquire, how might they start that? And, and so, what did your colleagues say? Like when you were in this situation, what did they tell you or what did they bring to the table that you hadn't thought of or I don't know. So, yeah, so they would say, can you help me with this? And I said, well, I can help you. I've got some ideas. Let's just park those for a minute. Talk to me a little bit about, about what your first thoughts are. Why? What What? What have you tried? What have you tried? And why might, not, why might that have not have been successful straight away? So you're having a conversation with them about, yep. you know, instead of rushing in, I yes. guess, and um, what is that phrase? Like solving the problem for them. Solving the problem. Yeah. That is a thing, as I understand. You're kind yeah. of giving a bit of space by the sounds of it. And so That's they right. can bring, bring in their opinions or, you know, you're having a bit more of a conversation rather than a, a problem-solving exercise. Correct. And this was – these were – these sort of micro-conversations was me pushing on the box of, um, of the model I was working in and – it also coincided, Mark, with me doing some other training outside of school under my own sort of volition around um, through a company uh, um, called Growth Coaching International. And their type of coaching, which is specifically in the education space, their types of coaching is um, the leadership style coaching or the personal style coaching. And so I was grappling with the new concepts that I was learning in that and the model I was working in in day-to-day. -day. And the, um, the common thread there, though, between those two, so if you imagine that, that uh, like that Venn diagram, that what is smack bang in the middle of that is empowering conversations um, in schools. And this is what I've come to really value and be passionate about um, and that I will hang my hat on um, every day if I can do my best in it in a conversation to have more of those those types of conversations. We do need people to just quickly solve a problem because otherwise if you knock on my door, you know, we've got X, Y, and Z, what do I do about it? It's not, there's not always an appropriate time to say, take a seat, Mark, let's, um, you know, talk about let's it. unpack, let's talk about it. We do need that sort of direct decision sometimes. Um, but what I feel very strongly about Presently, and this probably reflects the journey I've been on since COVID, since the pandemic and, and through the training, is that 
old thinking, old thinking has gotten us to where we are, but new thinking will progress us further, will help us discover new things. Um, and I want to know more about new thinking in your conversations, in conversations with others. And I'm okay with not knowing what that might look like. Um, so I began to take sort of broaden my circle of what coaching was because coaching at the very first instance was a was a small sphere of instructional type coaching and it began to encompass a little bit more of what dialogue could look like and um, the idea of embracing the not knowing rather than the knowing or or withholding the knowing yeah, for the sake of the learning in the conversation on how to empower the other person because a lot of our a lot of our conversations start from I've got to fix. I've got to fix. And that's a deficit model um, that doesn't sit right with me. And one of the big tenants that I'm learning to embrace, which is very difficult, is that the people we meet uh, in our day-to-day lives, whether they're at school or outside of work, they're already creative, resourceful, and whole. They already have access to some resources in it could be minutiae or even um, wholesale, like large resources, to tackle things in their lives that might be um, might be problematic, might be troubling, might be a decision they need to make. So my my idea of coaching has broadened some somewhat significantly since um, since COVID, and it started um, during the pandemic on conversations around practice, teaching practice and teaching learning. Yeah, so I was going to I was wondering just a few minutes ago this this definition of the 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 term coaching like cuz yeah. you know you have a coach of a team or mm. something like that they're generally a, an experienced practitioner so it's almost akin or aligned with this sort of um the the kind of conventional way of someone is a knowledge holder or they know yeah. stuff and then they're they're kind of like teaching their their kind of students, but mm. what what I'm picking up on is that the definition of coaching is a lot broader in terms of um, you know how it's interpreted or how it's what it looks like in the interaction between two p two or more people even. Correct. Yeah, I think um, yeah, because it's very tricky because there's been you've hit the nail on the head. There's very many definitions of what coaching is and they've all been informed by um, the type of coaching that someone has seen, experienced or or are embracing. And um, uh, Christian van Nuremberg from Growth Coaching International talks about a coaching continuum where there's uh, like a dialogical coaching middle and a facilitative coaching start and I forget the third the the third end but we our stance in these conversations um determines what sort of coaching we're requiring at the time um so yeah the coaching definition is a big a big rock to grapple with you're listening to perspectives in parryville 
Okay, from one mark to another mark, we yes. are participating in a collegial conversation at the moment. Mm. And so I guess from what we were talking about earlier, there's different types of conversations. Depends on if some of them are instructional or mm. maybe they're developmental or maybe they're mm. part of a mentor kind of, you, you kind of, or dare I say, coaching someone. But I mm. mean, I feel as though there's more that you might demystify for the audience. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot more, it's a, a lot more complicated or a lot more potential packed into this thing called coaching. And I'm, I'm interested to know what, well, what can you share with us? What can you tell us about, you know, the, the profound value of just a, what a seemingly simple conversation, what's going on there? You know, exchange, yeah. we're exchanging ideas now. If I stop talking and, and, and <laughs> guess the floor, no, I think um, I think what you've acknowledged there, Mark, is is really important. Sort of this profound um, simplicity. So for all the talk of all, for all these words that it, you know I've, I've said or we've said or you may have even heard about coaching, um, it really comes down to one conversation at a time. And yes, there might be a focus on that for a performance-based business coach um, who has bottom line dollars or efficiency in mind, or a life coach that you might have seen advertised somewhere for you know clarity on big ideas in your life and that sort of thing, or a health retreat coach. And they all come down to I think this idea of conversation and what and the power of a conversation and. One of the um, ongoing threads that I continue to pull and never realize that this thread is just going and going is that for all the conversations we have in our lives or in our jobs, how much of it actually are we actually present for the other person? Um, and, are, and when we are present, what a gift that is to that person. Um, and they can, like, yes, there's skills such as we can do in the office, like just close the laptop lid when someone approaches our desk or turn our phone over or put it to the side. And they are really big signals to that person that we're, we're ready to listen. But the idea of the conversation as holding a space um, so that ideas can be shared or clarity can be gained or discernment can be gained is a really powerful one. And part of that, um, part of what I've realized about education now, um, and I have like 16 years really, like it's a long time, but compared to some people that have a, like a lot longer, um, been teaching a lot longer, is that <laughs> just pumping those fists, let's do that, is that well, you know. <laughs> for all the talk of you know people outside of education we can't control that we can't control what people do with policy and incoming and outgoing education ministers and all that big picture stuff and the best thing that we can do for one another is be very conscious of our conversations um and i'm even more aware of that now uh as i see more and more people come in and leave very quickly um, a little vignette, Mark, recently we received a new teacher um, 
and I had been feeling very protective of this teacher because she was new to teaching and I felt like we needed to do her we needed to show our best selves to her for her to stay and that's the first time I've ever really felt like that and that probably coupled with the fact that um you know for a long time I just we just assumed people would stay in teaching but it's not the case now so Part of my work, I feel, in education in particular, is to show others and to help others see the potential of these these that a conversation can have, um, whether it's an instructional conversation or a developmental or a leadership conversation. That a conversation is very very powerful. What's, um, what's, what's happening when we have when we have a conversation like this one? What, what, mm. what is it about the conversation as a, I don't know if it's a mechanism or what do you call it? What is it? It's sort, of like, a, sort of like a little microcosm, isn't it, of, of the world. Like so we're, we're in different parts of, you know, Australia or New South Wales and, you know, I've got my own little environment here through the screen. You've got your own little environment. But for this very brief moment in time, those little spheres are interacting with each other and, we're sharing that. So the way that we speak to one another is reflective of what we're doing, of, of how we're being with one another and how we're being in the space. Um, and it's beautiful that we've got the time to speak, but we think of a very busy school and it might be a corridor chat. It might be a knock on the door. Can I come in have a quick moment? How can I create the culture and it starts one conversation at a time of, I've got time for you. I want to hear what you have to say um, because it's really, if it's important to you, then it's important to me. And um, this little sort of microculture of the way we speak and act around here is it has to be a really intentional one, it has to be really intentionally curated um, and held. And I often equate it to, if you're not thinking about curating and holding these spaces, then they'll become whatever um, whatever the dominant voice is or whatever um, the status quo is. And if the status quo in a particular organisation or a particular relationship is, is dominated by power or something like that, then that's it's just going to be perpetuated. So... I'm really conscious of these little micro conversations that we have in our staff rooms and in on you know in the car parks about how they have the potential to scale up and become um, the best version of themselves at a school level. Uh, and if I can work with others in having those conversations, and they can learn to have those conversations with others too. It, that will become the norm. That's 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 the new status quo. That's the that's the way we speak around here. And you know, if you visit a number of schools or a number of workplaces, you'll be able to get the gauge of how things are spoken about, or how things are just covered up, or or we just don't say that here, or we don't talk like that here. Um, the the power of a conversation can change the trajectory of that. And I guess probably we're talking about in bigger terms, culture, um, culture that's created between, um, you know, two people or a team or a organization. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the power of the conversation. 
And it's not a special set of skills. It's not a it's not a go and get X degree and or have this special badge to do that. Um, if it's not that, what is it? I think I think it's more of a way of being, Mark. Um, and yet, I guess skills do underpin a way of being because you don't know what you don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll just have but, to deep unpack that last couple of sentences. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you mean? What it, does that mean? You, you do need skills to know what you're doing, um, okay. but they don't need to be skills that are, that you get at a professional learning meeting or a um, or a special course that you go away for or anything like that. They're skills that we ho- that we can hold for each other. Um, can you give and, us a, what is one of these skills that you speak of? So I spoke about a little bit before, like sort of just closing the laptop lid or turning the phone over, um, and you know, positioning, positioning, body positioning. So a lot of my work was in um, like a hot desk area, um, and it was like frantic and that sort of thing. Um, so when people came and visited me. Uh, it would be very easy to just keep doing the stuff I'm doing at the hot desk, but I began to take the um, practice closing my laptop lid, pushing my phone away and turning my body so that I was facing the person. You're ready and to that, listen like, to them. Ready, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to, cre- ready to create that space that you might need for this particular moment. Another one, another one that I think, I guess it is a special skill, but it's also really not that special. It's not like a, a gold star skill. It's you're not, it's you're not exactly selling it here, you know. Well, uh, it's they're, they're deceptively simple, Mark. That Sorry, I think I that's did the beautiful. So what what it's, was one of these other deceptively simple skills? It's it's listening. It's it's I'm listening to what you're saying without interrupting or saying but or or thinking of how I'm going to object to what you've said listening to that person so they they get their whole thought out they finish their whole train of thought so that they've finished what they're saying and you're ready to acknowledge or um, say when you said that did you actually mean dot 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 or can you clarify what you mean by dot 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 another one is um, providing time to think and we do that with our students and, you know, there's a magic number for students, I guess, you know, we, um, we've got to give our students X amount of time to think, to think, but if I'm asking a question and it requires a little bit of think time, then am I, am I giving them that think time? Is it, is it a a question that requires them to put certain thoughts in order or, um, you mean uh, like then, acknowledging, like an acknowledging and kind of actually allocating a, an appropriate amount of think time, yeah, rather yeah. than yeah, yeah, and I, um, getting comfortable with silence in our conversations is one of those deceptively simple skills too. So silence, we often fill it uh, with with um, you know. Th- more information, yeah, with more information or more utter- utterances. And the more information that goes in, the less clarity there is of thinking. So um, those are some of the things that I've sort of taken on board to work to work in. There's also more, tr- more complex skills such as clarifying or summarising or even acknowledging some of the... Um, the way that a person has said something 
and how their body has reacted when they've said that. So one of the things we might say is, I noticed that you were smiling when you said that. How does that, like, why was there a smile there? And then if someone's, someone hears that and they, the person has heard, uh, seen them smile, it's a different sort of acknowledgement. They've, they've seen that I'm happy. They've seen that I'm, um, they've seen that I'm sort of excited about what I'm talking about. They want to know more. So these, some of those are more complex skills, but some of them on the other end are a little bit more simple. Yeah, I like that last one very much because it is mm. it's it's sort of beyond the information. It's not like just transfer of information verbally. It's yes. it can be highly nuanced and sophisticated. If somebody is smiling while they're delivering certain information, then it may it may usher in a whole more complex interpretation of what they're saying, but only mm. for those who are listening and have their eyes and open. And being present. So perhaps I had that conversation and I had my eyes on my laptop or my head and my phone and they said that same thing and I might have missed that smile, um, that little bid by them, I've missed. And that's an bid. opportunity. Bid. Mm. That bid by them. Yeah. What does that mean? I guess it's the possibility of an interaction point or a marker of a thought or a feeling. Um, and like we, you know, we our utterances are the things that we say with our mouth, but our our bids, the way that we hold ourselves are the things that we that we communicate with that aren't our words as well. And they can be our words, but that aren't our words. Um, and like you could walk into any cafe or any, you know, sort of um, any shopping centre and you could, without even interacting with anyone, you could see this whole um uh range of people holding themselves in different ways and while we don't fully know what's what they're thinking and what they're feeling at the time we can make a bit of a guess that um that person is you know feeling a little you know quite happy with themselves look at the way they're walking oh look they've got a big smile on their face um those are the sorts of things uh that we that a coach could interact with and could notice there's also a very sort of controversial side of coaching. Like I'm not meant to be the person that um, is conveying how I'm feeling. But if you, Mark, were saying, you know, I'm feeling nervous or I've got this really big decision um, in my life that I'm contemplating and I feel about this, um, sometimes some coaches would say, well, what the coach is feeling is irrelevant. However, because we're sharing this little culture, this little microculture, um, or I'm feeling a little bit nervous too, could that be indicative of how others in your social circle might be feeling or how your family might be feeling? Um, so co coaching... Um, you coaching mean like they're the, bouncing off? They're bouncing yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's not, um, I'm not giving you my ideas. I'm simply noticing how I'm feeling in relation to what you're saying. And for some people that normalizes the relationship between a coach rather than someone who sits coldly opposite and uh, and says, summarizes or clarifies, clarifies things. And I think um, that's, I think that's a more human way of interacting. I feel, I feel like that's a little bit more human-like, you know, where we, where I'm feeling nervous because you're also nervous or you're excited, so you're help. Like I'm starting to feel excited about that big choice that you're going to make too. 
Yeah, it's sort of um, resonating or it's a... Resonating, yeah, yeah. So this is a, probably a long way from that very start where I spoke to you a little bit about um, the instructional coaching and, you know, um, I guess what I'm doing is I'm walking uh, the, this continuum of coaching where I'm broadening my understanding as well. Um, and I still very much um, wear the instructional coach hat, um, but I'm also learning to stand or hold my stance in a different way as a coach for other people, um, which I'm really finding valuable and rewarding because it goes back to the idea of having conversations with others that are meaningful to them um, or that, that will have impact in some way or another in their life. Um what I'm also learning as well is that it doesn't always have to have an action. There doesn't always have to be a, a tangible result of a coaching conversation um, because life is not always like that. It could just be a little thought that has changed or, or I've realized I now value this after my conversation. And that's where I'm learning that um, coaching can have an objective aspect, but it can also have an element of new thinking, of new understanding, of discernment um, that may eventually lead to a change in action, but um, more of a developmental or, or, or dare I say it, existential view of, um, of coaching. I've, I've come a long way, I guess. <laughs> so you mentioned a few times earlier on about new thinking, new mm. thinking. And mm. I guess this idea of um oh I guess what's the what's what does someone do with all this new thinking? Well I think I think that you don't often know that you need new thinking. What we need is someone to help us provide space and time for new thinking. And that's where the that's where coaching sits. Um, quite often we would seek the sort of wisdom of those in our team or in our family, and they often bring ideas that are all, much of the same or already have already been tabled. A coach brings the opportunity and the purposefully created space for new thinking to emerge um, without judgment, without ideas or without the idea the the hat of being or the weight of being the expert. Um, it's it's a space, an emergent space for new thinking to occur. And that's and like new thinking is exciting thinking. New thinking is is about change. New thinking is about um, change for self, change in a, a partnership, change in an organization. And um, whether it's performative or developmental, um, we do not move on from where we are without new thinking or growth or change. And the you can throw as many um, metaphors at, at a coach as you like, whether they're a, they're a mirror or a conduit or a lighthouse or the you know the the captain or the um, navigator on a ship or anything like that or the co-passenger. Um, the idea that um, old thinking has gotten us to this point. And it's okay for a certain amount of time, but new thinking will will help us take steps in a in a different direction, in a, a direction that's wanted. And um, 
quite often teams or individuals come up with those questions themselves. It's like, is this what I want for my life? Or is this the direction the company is going? Or is this um, the best thing for the students at our school? And we need people that are, that have the capacity to create spaces for new thinking to emerge. Um, and that's, that's the role of a coach, Mark. That's, that's, that's what I really enjoy doing. So how do people talk when they're talking every day in conversations and they use the word coaching? What, are mm. the, what sort of language do they use around that? That is a really good question. And I, I do have a fascination with how people talk about language, uh, how talk, people talk about coaching. And I've been collecting these ideas over a number of time. And what I've found is that there's a distinction between the language of something and how things are being languaged or our languaging of that. Um, so if I say the language of coaching, I might say words like clarify and listen and um, talk and dialogue. But the everyday languaging is how we actually embody that, is what we actually do in that time. And if we if we're more conscious of how we're talking about our discussions, and they might not be coaching discussions, but if we're more conscious about talking or um, conscious about holding our discussions in a way that is more beneficial for not only um, one person but the other, I think that's that's the arc that sort of binds, that connects that connects it away. I guess it's the words more empowering or more more purposeful discussions that. It, that way it's not necessarily a coaching discussion. It's more like a coach-like discussion or a a more reciprocal or giving discussion. And the way that we do talk about it does matter um, and we can get hung up on lots of different things, but how we hold those spaces for one another is really important. In this episode, I chatted with Mark Bennett. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.